Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome uh, to Chasing Justice here on the America Out Loud Radio Network. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe, and I have my list of things I want to talk about here. I'm glad you're spending the afternoon with me. I hope uh, if, if this is drive time for you, you're, you're getting home safely and quickly, which is one of the things I'm going to start talking about. Interesting how our municipalities do things, how they make decisions. And you say to yourself, is that the right decision? Did they, did they choose the right thing when it comes to paving roads? This is all like very basic, simplistic kind of stuff, right? But paving roads, fixing potholes. But how many of our communities really don't do that well? And we pay a lot of taxes. Like I'm here in New Jersey, and I think we pay the highest property tax anywhere in the nation. You would think our roads, our bridges, everything that we have in our community that's related to our municipality or our counties would be perfect. But we all know they're not. So what I'm going to say to you is that in the course of us talking here, you may hear a couple of things. You may hear a light rumble in the background. Well, I hope you don't hear that, but there's no way I can get around it because it's been going on for days and days and days. The township has decided that they are going to mill and repave the streets in my neighborhood. So I've been putting up with it for three days. I I really appreciate that they're going to rip up the old uh, tar streets and they're going to put down nice new ones, which is really wonderful for everybody, for the kids riding their bikes, for me riding my car, walking the dog, all that good stuff. But the the noise level that we've had to endure and the shaking of my house is unbelievable. The milling machine just grind and grind and grinding, if you know how they go. And I said, okay, good. Um, you know, I'll put together uh, I'll put together my show. I can I can get it together. I can talk to everybody. And then you have this noise in the background. Well, they're just finishing now uh, the paving part in front of it. And they got the big paver. And I guess the thing vibrates. You know, the big. Uh, big round wheels, you know, the heavy thing that pushes the tar down and and smushes it. I can't think of the name, but it's a heavy machine. And that thing vibrates. My whole house is vibrating here. The dog is running around. The birds are flying out of the yard. It's uh, it's bizarre. And it makes an unbelievable loud noise. So I'm hoping they're done for the day. You know, it's uh, their municipal guys. So uh, they're probably done for the day. Here's the problem. My street is kind of unique in that there are two townships that come together where I live. We're going to say Happy Town and Smiley Town. We're going to call these two towns. I live in Happy Town. Well, the dividing line of Happy Town and Smiley Town doesn't run just down the middle of the road. So the neighbors across the street are from Smiley Town and people on my side are Happy Town. The line runs up and down people's yards. So basically, when you drive onto my street, The first three houses are Smiley Town, and then the line takes a dive, and the next eight houses are Happy Town. Then it comes around a bend and comes over by my house, and the line runs right down the street until it gets to my house, and then it cuts across my lawn and my neighbor's lawn, and then disappears behind the neighbor's house uh, the other way. So basically, the first 35 feet of my property is in Smiley Town. The rest of the property where my house is is Happy Town. Now, that sounds kind of weird, right? Uh, Why would they do that? 
Well, they decide they're going to mill and pave this street. And I'm a big fan of municipal workers. They work very hard. A couple years ago, they wanted to fire half the, uh, half the township uh, workers. And all of us in the neighborhood, in the community, we band together and said, no, we'll pay an extra $500 a year in taxes if that'll keep the municipal workers employed. Because they do a good job. They work hard. It's good, hard, solid work. Well, they decide they're going to mill. And you can see where they milled, I guess, 10 or 15 years ago. About four or five houses down. So if, if, you're, if you're listening to your radio, to your right, four or five houses down where the line splits, they made a demarcation line. And that's where they started milling the road from there forward past my house. Well, my neighbor to the right is also in Happy Town. This time, they made the line right at my property line at the edge of my property line and my neighbor's property line, and that's where they started milling the road. So I happened to see the foreman of the job, and I went out and I said, hey, uh, you guys are working pretty quick, but you realize that my neighbor to the right, this house over here, um, he's also happy town, and you're not going to mill the road in front of his house because I can see the other line uh, past his house where you did it 15 years ago. See, that's the, that's the real town line. And the guy says to me, well, I can appreciate that, but uh, according to our drawings, we start here and we go that way. I said, so you're going to spend all this time and you're going to drive away today after milling all of this and you're missing a house in the town who's paying taxes to have their road milled. I think you should call your foreman or you should talk to somebody before you just have to come back. He goes, yeah, I appreciate that, but uh, we only go by the lines we got, which ridiculous. So now my neighbor calls and he goes, you know, how come you're not doing the road in front of my house? Well, that's uh, Smiley Town. He goes, um, across the street is Smiley Town, but in front of my house is Happy Town. And they said, yeah, well, we're not doing that. Can you imagine that? That, that audacity? Here's the other problem we get with municipalities. Because we have these two towns, houses on both sides of the street, because it is crazy line, are either in Happy Town or Smiley Town, into wintertime for years the Happy Town snowplow, which is the bane of my existence, snow, would come riding down the block and they wouldn't have their plow down on the first part of the block because, well, that's where Smiley Town houses are. Then they would put the plow down and plow in front of my house, down the block and around, and then lift their plow again because that was Happy Town. We're not, we're not going to plow uh, Smiley Town. And then later on, Smiley Town would come and do another intersection area without, so the entire road did not get plowed. So me, the Happy Town people, and the Smiley Town people could not get off of our block because they kept lifting and dropping their plows instead of just plow the street. How ridiculous, right? So I actually, I knew the mayor uh, of our town, so I called him on the phone. And he says, Joe, that's impossible. Nobody, that is so ridiculous. Nobody would do such a thing. I said, well, you do it, and your road department does it, and so does Smiley Town's mayor and his town. Could you guys please get together and figure this out? Because we can't get out of our block at either end because it doesn't get plowed. And to his credit, I have to say, he was a good, um, a good steward uh, listening to his uh, constituency. He called the mayor of Smiley Town, and they both were shocked. I mean, there was a, both of them were out here one day. They knocked on the door, and they go, where does this happen? And I showed them. And they had the two road department managers from each town there. And they were like, oh, yeah, we start to plow in here. We stop it over there. And they, why? Well, it's not our town. We're not going to plow another town. Right then and there, they made a decision. When we go to plow now, you'll plow everything. Right? Plow the whole road, both of you, both sides. Plow the road in and out. Which, you know, thank God they finally came to that decision. Well, I got that off my chest. Thank you. I appreciate that.
So if you hear that sound in the background, that's what it is. You know, simple little problems like that, that would pop up. Like who would ever think that two towns that share a road wouldn't just both plow the road? In the past, I've asked the plow drivers, why do you lift your plow halfway down the block? They said, well, because that's the other town. I mean, what kind of a mentality is that? You don't plow the whole street. So I'm going to move past that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Now, today, this week, I want to say is a is a, uh, a personally uh, happy day and melancholy day for me. Uh, there's two great birthdays this month, and they share the same date. One is my sainted mother, Corrine. My mother, Corrine, is uh, she's just a sweet delight, or she was. I, I have to put it properly. See, I'm even conflicted when I talk about her. Uh, my mom passed away at 64 years old uh, back in, wow, 20, 2014? I think it was 2014. Uh, not totally unexpected, but unexpected, if you know what I mean. She passed away, and it, it was it was very sad. My mother was one of these kind of people that, uh, you know, people say all the time, Lieutenant Joe, how did you get to be such a uh, uh, an aggressive, go-out-and-do-thing kind of guy? And the way I think part of that, as I, as I look back at my story and my life, and you try and figure out who you are as a human being and where you come from, my mother was one of these people that, no matter what I did, she thought it was great. She was always encouraging. She was neg- never negative, ever. You know, uh, if she saw me, if I drew a picture as a little kid, it was the greatest picture she ever saw. The most beautiful picture, greatest use of color she ever saw. You know, when I tried to play, start playing sports, she says, listen, I, I, I saw that you had a little problem there, but I'll tell you, the way you ran was the best. You ran best out of all them other boys out there. She was very encouraging. As I got older, I started playing the guitar and making music, and she endured... I can't tell you, uh, Can't Get Enough by Bad Company that I played 50,000 times with my friend on the drums in our basement trying to perfect that song. And I know that wasn't her music, and it was very loud. You know, I had a, a big Marshall stack down here, and she says to me, that, that's a great song. I really like that song. I guess a lot of people could dance to that song, right? No matter what it was, my mother, Kareen, was always... Um, my biggest fan and encouraged me to try new things. A funny story, way, way back in the day, they were making a movie, uh, who was it? Um, the Pants Girl from, uh, from Jordash Jeans. She was a movie star back then, young kid, she was a model, and they were making a movie, Paradise or something, it was her and another uh, TV kid, uh, and they were stuck on, a, on an island. Uh, it was going to be a big movie, they were announcing, they were looking for casting. Now, I had brown hair, I've always had brown hair. But my mother read about this, and she said, Joseph, uh, they're casting for a movie with uh, Brooke Shields. That's who it was, with Brooke Shields. And they're looking for the, uh, for the boy to play the part of the other lead, but he has blonde hair. Do you want to try out for it? We can, we can dye your hair blonde. I bet you'd be a great actor. Right? Now, uh, the only acting I had done to that point was in fifth grade. I was the king of tarts right? in a school play, and I was the king of tarts. And I was like, bring me my tarts, you know, that kind of thing which, of course, she thought was uh, just the most amazing play she had ever seen. So it's her birthday, and I miss my mother dearly. You know, and I, and I see people on social media, and they recount, you know, the loss of their parents or the loss of a child or someone, and they recount that day, and they say, boy, it still hurts, it still hurts. Well, I can tell you two things. My dad's been gone since 1976, and my mom since uh, 2014. That's a long time for both of them. But I can tell you, um, 
actually, I'm sorry, you know what? My mom my mom passed in 2004. I got the dates uh, missing as I'm adding them up in my head. And the sadness never goes away. The pain of losing them never goes away. It is dulled by time. Time can dull your pain. It just never makes your pain actually go away. And when I think about her, that's why I said I'm ambivalent about it because I'm very joyous of her and I think of her and I smile. My brother posts a picture on social media, uh, you know, miss you mom and this and that. And I saw the picture and I smiled when I saw her face because you don't see the face every day, you know, and, uh, unless you're looking through pictures. And there's my mom smiling back at me. And I can just think of how much I loved her, how wonderful she was. Uh, she was. And all my friends called her mom because she was that kind of mom. She would understand anything going on in your life. She, Our house was open. You know, my friends could come here. They could, uh, they could feel safe here. They could do things here. It was really wonderful. And uh, I really love my mom and I miss her. And I want to wish her happy birthday. Happy birthday, Corrine. Uh, you were a wonderful mom and a great lesson to all of us. Uh, she was great when she met Kathleen, and uh, getting us through our wedding was really wonderful, dancing with my mom. She cried the whole time. She cried. We were doing the, the mother and uh, son dance. She cried the whole time. She was absolutely adorable, and, and I truly miss her. And if you love your mom, you love your dad, if you still have them with you, I'm going to give you a little piece of advice. Go hug them and kiss them. If you're having arguments with them, solve those arguments. Go find these people. Tell them how much you love them and spend time with them. It is really, really important. Uh, the other person who shares the same birthday as my beloved sainted mother, Corrine, is Pope John Paul II. Right? His birthday was the same as my mother's birthday, and my mother loved John Paul. So she talked about John Paul. Oh, he's such a, much a wonderful man, and he was a really great uh, pope for, for the Catholic Church. Very good man, but his birthday was the same as hers. And she used to say, hey, I'm born on the same day as the Pope. And I'd say, wait a minute, the Pope is born the same day as you. Keep that in mind, my sainted mother. So uh, we have uh, we have special days in our calendar. And I, I'm, I'm telling you some personal things today about Lieutenant Joe. And I wanted to mention my mom, her birthday, and the road problem I'm having outside. Now, the third thing, and I'm hoping this is keeping you interested. As you're driving home, you're going to go home and see your family. You're going to have dinner. You're going to have a cocktail, whatever you're going to do. You know that I have a rescue dog, uh, Arthur the Rescue Dog. Now, this is going to be some dog advice for people who may want to be uh, rescue parents or who have a regular dog. You know, we've always had Labradors, and I love Labradors. Labradors are wonderful, wonderful dogs. Uh, they're, they're, they're very loving. They're sweet. They're good with children. Uh, they're not very good guard dogs. You know, if you have a Labrador and a burglar breaks in, the, the, the Labrador will walk them over to the fine china and the jewelry. Uh, they're not going to really do that kind of protection, but they're very, very good. So when we got Arthur, Arthur is a, um, he's a rescue and he's a shepherd. Okay. So that's brand new kind of a dog for us. We never had a shepherd. We're used to the lab that chases the ball 85,000 times in a row and we'll chase the ball till they pass out. Um, my, my Labradors, the last one we had was a shadow. And I would take him to a lake, to the ocean, any body of water, and that dog was instantly in the water. Could not keep him out of the water. He loved it. He would, I would throw a ball in the ocean, and he would go out and fetch that ball so many times. He'd be exhausted, and he would still go out and get the ball. He'd be crying on his way out because he's tired, and he won't stop going into it because he loved the ball. Shadow, as a, uh, as a shepherd, um, doesn't like the whole chase the ball thing. He'll go chase it, get it, and then he takes it away. He doesn't want to give it back to you. But here's the point of my story with Shadow, the, the rescue dog. We decided to do the right thing and try and help a rescue. So we did, uh, what are they going fostering for a lot of dogs. And when we finally came across Shadow, my kids fell in love with him. 
You know, uh, this big black puppy, big paws. He was adorable, very cuddly. Um, so we decided to keep him. We were missing our shadow, who we had to put down because he had some very bad cancer. And, okay, we, we let our house always resonates with a dog running through it and playing catch and jumping in the pool and playing with the kids and all that. So we loved this, uh, this, this, this little boy, Arthur, and we kept him. And over the course of time, we started to notice that he seemed to have, I don't know, nervous problems. He seemed very nervous about... Um, if there, was, uh, if, there, if there was loud noises, he'd get very nervous. He'd walk in circles. He would cry. If it was really windy out or there was a storm, he would, he would be very nervous and he'd try and jump in bed with us. Now, I don't mind the dog sleeping at the end of our bed. We have a great big giant king-size bed, me and Miss Kathy sleeping. And I didn't mind the dog sleeping there once in a while, but not all the time. You know, sometimes you want to, you know, you, you don't want the dog on top of your legs and all that kind of stuff. The Labradors were smart. They understood. Stay away from me and Miss Kathy. Stay in the middle if you could. Way at the bottom and you could stay there all night. You never bothered anybody. Arthur, uh, he rolls around. He rolls around laying on my legs, laying on Kathy's legs, moving 52 times, circling. It wakes everybody up. So we have him sleep in his own sleeping area. But when the weather would be bad, you would see he would really get nervous and upset. And you feel bad for him because he's that nervous and upset. But it got now he's six and a half years old now we've had him six and a half years and we're assuming he was like six months old when we got him so maybe he's actually seven but his nervousness has gotten worse and worse and then we notice that he's licking himself all the time licking his paws licking his tail licking all this stuff and he's losing hair so we take him to the vet hey vet what's wrong with him the vet says he may have allergies imagine that a dog with allergies so they we, we give him these pills they're expensive pills they're supposed to stop the licking and they work a little bit but, you know, they're so expensive, it's ridiculous. But we're trying to figure out what we can do to help this dog. So then finally, after about a year and a half of these very expensive pills that didn't help that much, the vet says, um, I got a shot. I can give him a shot that'll last two months or six months and it'll stop the licking. So we gave him the shot. And you know what? Miraculously, overnight, the licking stopped. We were so happy for the dog because you got to figure out how uncomfortable he has to be, licking himself all the time, licking his paws, licking his, licking his uh, tail and his hair coming off. So we got him the shot. We figured, okay, well, it's an expensive shot, but we'll get it twice a year and he'll be comfortable. You know, he's, he deserved to do that for the dog, take care of the animal. But we noticed the other nervous conditions really didn't stop. Um, he was afraid of his tail. He's afraid of the vacuum cleaner just seeing it. He does not like baths. If, if I'm outside with him and I pick up the hose to water some vegetables, he runs like, like somebody's about to, to eat him or something. He barks at everything that walks by incessantly. And when we talked to another doctor, veterinarian, they said all those are signs of, uh, of anxiety. How's his approach to other dogs? It's horrible. He would never bite anybody. But when he sees another dog, he goes running rah, 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 like this with the haunches up. And of course, then the other dog reacts. And so we can't take him out on walks because he reacts so badly with other dogs. And, and he started limiting his life. You know, we can't take him outside. We can't have him out front. We can only have him out back. We can't take him to the park because he barks really bad. He loses his mind when UPS or FedEx shows up at the door. And it started getting worse and worse for the past, I don't know, seven months or so. And it came to a culmination last month. We had two or three really windy nights, and the poor dog was hysterical. We had to leave him in the bed with us, but even in the bed, he was nervous. He was upset. And it got worse and worse, and we were up all night long with this crying dog. I mean, literally crying, <laughs> with, you know, all night. 
So we took him back to the vet and we said, listen, we got to be able to do something for this dog. Now, after all these years, the vet says, well, it's probably an anxiety problem. So I think we should try some anxiety medication. I said, what? I got a dog now on anxiety medication? Yeah, so she gave us these pills. We give them twice a day. She gave us some calming stuff you put on his food to help his stomach because he also has a nervous stomach, the poor thing. And then some kind of like a, a, a generic Zoloft kind of a drug for event days, like when you have a big storm or you got people in front of your house, milling your house, milling your street, making all these nice walker, workers walking all around. Well, let me tell you, if you have a dog with any of these kind of conditions, it's it's probably really sad for the dog to be so nervous and so upset and so afraid and, and limit their life. And it's, it's also tough for you, I bet, because I know it's tough for us. We, we were trying to figure out how, how could we do this for, what, another 10 years? This, this kind of constant up all night crying. Well, we gave him this medication, and it's probably been about three weeks now. It is a new, brand new Arthur, an Arthur we have never seen since he's a puppy. He is no longer barking at every person that walks by our house. The FedEx man comes and leaves things, and his tail just wags. Right, uh, we had a big storm here the other night, and basically, he went to bed. And he, Arthur, Arthur, you okay? He curled up and went to sleep. He's uh, uh, actually seen the neighbor's dog, and they went out and they played and they rolled around instead of him being horrible. It has been a really great thing, um, and I'm just telling you, if you have a dog, and the dog has some kind of conditions, check with you, check with a couple of vets because not all of them know everything everybody else knows. And we, it took us the second vet to say, hey, maybe your dog has an anxiety condition. Can you imagine that? My dog has an anxiety condition uh, and he needs Zoloft. But if that helps the dog to be comfortable and helps us all to be comfortable, then I said, we'll do it. You know, we'll do it. Um, it's a pretty simple thing to take care of the dog. So those are three personal things out of Lieutenant Joe's life. Uh, that I want to tell you about. I'll tell you a little professional thing here because we're going to get into the politics. We're going to get into the craziness. There's so much craziness. We're going to get into that. But uh, I taught for the last two weeks. I, I teach police officers uh, remotely across the country and we teach in live at police academies. And we, we've been doing a couple classes, field training officer class, which was filled and really great men and women of law enforcement, such good guys and girls that are out there. And they are dealing with some difficult stuff. They are dealing with probably for the first time having uh, having their the public the public not really appreciate them uh, the public who who thinks that they're bad the public who thinks that uh, they cheat they hate people for all kind of reasons they don't support the police you know ban the police this this uh, defund the police and these young men and women are out there trying to do what's right for all of us and they're doing it in the middle of this kind of a mess so one of the things I tell them is that when I first came on the job uh, back in 1986, if I walked into a courtroom as a police officer and I began my testimony on any kind of a case and I'd say, you know what, um, the sky is orange and there are two moons out there. Everybody in that room, the judge, the jury, everybody would look out the window and say, geez, I, I don't know. I, I, I thought the sky was blue and there's one moon, but you know what? The cop said it, so it must be true, right? That was the kind of confidence people had in law enforcement you know they they believed the cop if the cop said it that's it you know and that slowly changed over time with the 24-hour news cycle when we started to see some officers that did some bad things and i'm going to be the first one to tell you any cop will tell you uh there are some bad apples amongst our group but i'll tell you if we got a thousand apples if that was the whole police all the police across the entire country and you get a thousand cops that's everybody 
there's two bad apples in that bunch. That's really the ratio of what it is. It is not this, 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 most cops hate people. We have these meetings in the morning, figure out who we're going to go get and all that kind of stuff. That, that doesn't really happen. Uh, but we do have a couple of bad apples and we're trying to find ways to, to clear them out. So one of the things I teach is I teach pre-employment background investigations. How do we find these potentially bad officers before they get on the job? How can we identify them? Well, the reality is some of the traits that we see in, in the officers that have gone wrong, that have done bad things, are identifiable traits that probably go back way back into their life so that you can see when they were in high school, when they were in sports, uh, when they were going to college. There's things that they were doing that were inappropriate that you can see are, are similar to what they do inappropriately when they're, when they're on the job as police officers. So I teach these uh, police departments, how to screen people out, what to look for above and beyond just the application, right? You look in that application and uh, they say, give me three, uh, the names of three people as your references. Well, what do we expect those references to say? The references are going to say, greatest guy in the world, most wonderful girl in the world, I'd hire them any minute. Of course, that's what your reference is going to say. You have to go beyond that. So that's one of the programs that we teach is, is, um, how to, how to do pre-employment background investigating. And it really, it's, it's a different way than I think some people have done it before. I don't look at the skill sets I think someone's going to need to be a police officer. I look at the personality traits of a person, right? Are they kind? Are they compassionate? Are they smart? Are they intelligent? Uh, do they have social intelligence? Do they understand when they're around groups of people that are different than them? Can they understand and see the value in all these other kinds of people? Do they branch out? Do they, do they have experiences beyond their own experience uh, that they can appreciate? Can they see the value in different cultures and all the things, these cultures we have, so many different cultures in our country now that bring things. I try and get them to understand if you have biases against anybody uh, for any reason, you need to examine that and say, well, it's not them. It's not all of them are bad. Whoever it is, whatever group it is, there are bad apples in every group. So if, if you have no experience with other groups other than your own, you might think everybody's bad. So we have to look beyond that, right? We have to go beyond that and get new experiences and understand there are so many wonderful people, so many wonderful cultures in our country, things that are different than me growing up. I'm an Irish Italian guy. I grew up with uh, scone and uh, spaghetti and meatballs. Well, there's a million different cultures out there that have wonderful family traditions, wonderful holidays, and we can really all enjoy it. And that's what I try and teach uh, these people who are hiring cops. Go back and look and see if you can find things in the experiences, the actions and activities of what young people did uh, early on in their life, because that's probably going to be what they're going to do once they get on the job. So we look at, of course, driver's license history, because our driver's license tells really who we are, doesn't it? So it's one thing a 17, 18-year-old kid gets a, a careless driving ticket or a speeding ticket. They're brand new behind the wheel. Everybody does that. But if you got somebody applying to be a police officer at 23 years old and they got a reckless driving ticket uh, three months earlier, what do you think that person is going to do when you give them a gun and a badge and a rock and roll uh, patrol car that can go 200 miles an hour and the freedom to go out there and drive it? They're probably going to drive very poorly. So that's probably what they're going to do when they get on the job. So there's lots of different things we, we, we can look at. And, uh, you know, so we've been teaching for the last couple of weeks. And when we come back from our break, I'll tell you a little bit more about what's been going on. And then we'll get into all the nitty gritty of the politics and, and what the president and all these people are trying to do to us and, and the, the uh, primaries that are coming up and how 
we can try and save our country. We'll be back in a minute. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. All right, everybody, welcome back to Chasing Justice. Once again, I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe, and today we talked about some personal things, things going on in, uh, in Lieutenant Joe's life, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, uh, to voice some of these things that are out there. Uh, we left uh, off uh, before our break, and we were talking about some of the training that we're doing in, in law enforcement and how these men and women are, are trying to do the right thing, and they're, they're faced with lots of difficulties uh, with the public perception of law enforcement going down and down and down. But one of the other things I try to buoy them and tell them is that, you know, I've been at this job for so long. I've been involved in law enforcement for so many years that I have seen um, law enforcement go from heroes to zeros and back again. And we're starting to see a trend back towards law enforcement because the crime is getting out of control. Crime is absolutely out of control. In New York the other day, New York City, an 11-year-old little girl was killed uh, by a stray bullet that hit her in the stomach from a, a, a gang fight up the street. She's not the first one. There's been little children killed all over our country uh, in some of our bigger cities where crime is just absolutely run amok. And you have cops out there that are trying to do their jobs. And as we all know, uh, you can have serious problems doing your job if you're a law enforcement officer. People don't like to be arrested. They don't like to be taken in custody. They don't like to be held to account for the things that they do. And uh, we have some of our politician friends, some of our political friends, who seem to think that if you just leave the criminals alone and let them, uh, let them alone, don't, don't harass them, don't bother them, uh, they'll stop committing crime. You know, people sit back and say, you know, uh, maybe I won't do a robbery today because the police don't harass me anymore and stop me on the street and try and find my illegal gun. So maybe it's a good idea that I'll, I'll, I'll quit doing, uh, I'll quit doing um, robberies now. Does anybody think that's, that's really going to happen? That's really the way life works? No, it's not. Uh, what happens is criminals then become emboldened because they know they won't be arrested. Look at all across the country. 
where they have no bail. They won't be. We were not going to put bail on people. And I, I've, we've beaten this this story up to death about the bail. You know, some things there should not be bail for. You know, minor nonviolent crimes. You shouldn't be people putting people in jail for months because they shoplifted. Uh, things like that. But for any kind of violent crime, um, threat crimes or whatever, you know, people are dangerous. And we find that about 15% of the population commits 90% of the crime. And that's across the board. Doesn't matter who you are, your race, where you live. There's about 15% of us as, as human beings, American citizens, that are pretty bad. And we do most of the crime. So we need to focus on those people. And when they are sitting in jail, they're not committing more crimes. How many times have we heard about a guy who rapes somebody, no bailed, goes back out and rapes somebody again, robs a store, shoots the clerk, gets out uh, a couple months later, a couple weeks later, and goes out and does it again? There's a guy doing burglaries in New York City. He, he did six burglaries in six days because they kept letting him go. You know, what if somebody was home in one of those houses and confronted him and he hurt that person or he assaulted that person in some way? How would you explain that? How could you, how could you walk away from something like that? So that's kind of that's kind of where we, we see our officers today are trying to decide, do I do my job, do I do it proactively, or do I do it reactively? And here's the difference. Proactive police work, the aggressive proactive police work is what keeps communities safe, especially crime-ridden communities. If you have a lot of crime in your community and you have police officers that only react to phone calls for help, 911, come here, I'm being robbed. And they get there and the robbery's already over and you're shot or you're stabbed. Uh, you're not preventing any future, future crime because you're only reacting. It is proactive police work. Officers rolling around and looking for people who are acting in suspicious manners. For people who are perhaps carrying weapons. And there's all kinds of ways that you can detect somebody's carrying a weapon besides just seeing it uh, in their hand. So officers would stop those people, frisk them, find the weapons, and arrest them. Now those people are off the street. They're not committing robberies and rapes every single day. But our society has decided uh, through some of our, our political uh, leadership that, you know, if you just leave people alone. So what we see is, is huge happening in, in many cities. No longer are we stopping people for motor vehicle violations. All right, we have the uh, the red light cameras everywhere, and that's good enough. We'll just get you know tons of more tickets because people go through the red light. Just slow down the yellow or speed up the yellow, and then people go through, and you get an eighty-five, hundred-dollar ticket in the mail seventeen times a day. They've said to the officers, "Don't stop cars because if you stop cars, you might come across somebody with a weapon. You might come across somebody who's wanted. You might come across somebody who's got drugs they shouldn't have, and then they have to arrest them. And people don't want to be arrested. And then they fight with you, and then uh, the cops cops have to take action. And next thing you know, you have, uh, you have riots because somebody who, who was committing a crime, resisted arrest, fought with the officer, and the officer had to use the appropriate force to stop him. Uh, and then, of course, nobody likes that. So maybe don't, don't stop cars, and then you won't be confronting people. Well, all that does is let people ride around with uh, cars that are unsafe, uh, without driver's licenses, and now you have accidents, and now your family can get hurt because we're not really looking at that anymore. Uh, look in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, they have this huge problem of uh, people. There, See, there goes Arthur now. Now I just get done telling you he's better with his medication, but um, we, we, don't, we didn't give him his afternoon pill yet. I'm sure that's what it is. Because um, he gets to one in the morning, one in the afternoon. So it's almost time to dose him up, I think, to help him calm down. But anyway, what we see is, um, we see in Philadelphia, they got all these young men riding around on these, uh, are, what are these little motorcycles and, and four-wheelers. 
and like 30 and 40 guys at one time riding up the streets, menacing people with these vehicles. And the officers just looked the other way. They just turned their head and looked the other way because now I got to go after them. Now they're going to drive crazy. They're going to crash and it's my fault. So our cops today are stuck with that kind of a, a decision. If I do my job uh, aggressively to protect our community, well, there's a good chance I'm going to get into some kind of conflict with a criminal. And when the media looks at it, when the community looks at it, they're not going to say the officer was doing their job and had to deal with a criminal who resisted, fought, pulled a weapon. They're going to say the evil, hateful cop attacked a person for no reason, stopped them for no reason, and caused this conflict, and it's the cop's fault. Lock them up. Indict them. And you got these young men and women who, who took the job so they could be community heroes. They can come out and protect people, protect their community, and make a better life for everyone. And instead, they're, they're walking around going, I'm going to get indicted for doing my job. Why would I ever be proactive again? We are seeing officers uh, retire early, absolute first opportunity they can. We're seeing many, many officers leave their department just, you know, I'm going to stop being a cop. I'm going to go be a plumber. It's a lot better job. It's a lot safer. Uh, people don't hate you. They don't come after you and cry and kill you and indict you every single day. This is bad for our country as we're seeing this skyrocketing crime. And that's really the reason why. You have officers who are backing off of anything proactive. They're told to ignore certain things, and they do. And it's those little things. You know, the, the, the theory that started, that really cleaned up New York, Giuliani used to clean up uh, New York back in the day, was the broken windows theory. And the broken windows theory basically said, if you uh, stop people from committing small little crimes, like breaking windows, or if you stop them from uh, jumping turnstiles or minor shoplifting, if you prevent them there and you take them into custody and you identify them, uh, then you'll, you'll be stopping bigger crimes later on, because now the people are in the system, you have their fingerprints, you have their DNA, they commit a uh, burglary, rape, sexual assault, murder. Now you got their fingerprints because they were arrested for shoplifting or for jumping a turnstile or whatever. So if you take care of the little things, you prevent a lot of the bigger crimes is really the idea. So uh, that was, uh, along with other programs that were aggressive, proactive police work, uh, you know, stop and frisk. We had whole units of undercover officers running around, and when they would see somebody that looked suspicious, they would notice certain things. You can notice certain things about somebody carrying a weapon, whether it's on a, on their belt in their holster or if it's just tucked into their pants or if it's in their jacket pocket. There are telltale signs that we train police officers to look for. You know, they're not just running up to people for no reason and stopping them and frisking them. The officer has noticed something that, based on their training and experience, indicates that the person might have a weapon. So let's go over and talk to them. Now that person answers some questions a little inappropriately. They don't really uh, respond the way someone who doesn't have a weapon would be. They make a, a certain kind of a move. They, they do lots of things when they're carrying a gun and they're talking to a cop. The cop notices that. I, I'm going to frisk you now. Finds the gun and locks him up. Well, it's unfortunate that in high crime areas, officers find lots of criminals. And people don't like that. They want to blame that the cops hate people and doing things. And really, they're not. That's how you get crime to go down. You take the guns away from the potential criminals. You lock the potential criminals up when they commit a crime. And you keep them away from decent society. How many people have died in these communities across our country and our cities that crime is out of control because we're not fighting crime anymore? How many people... Just look at Chicago. How many people are shot and killed still every single weekend in Chicago? 
Do we do anything about it? Do we talk anything about it? No, because why? It doesn't fit a narrative and it, it might make certain people look not perfect and we can't do that, so let's just ignore it. Instead of saying, what about the innocent people in every community that have to deal with the criminal types? What about the innocent mothers, fathers, children, grandparents who have to live in communities that are overwhelmed with crime, that they have to be afraid to leave their house, that a little 11-year-old girl can't be walking up the street and not get shot in the stomach and die, right? A little six-year-old boy can't get shot in the head sitting on his front porch playing with his friends, right? This is insanity that we're doing, and we're going to see the pendulum go the other way because it, it, gets, it gets so out of hand that... It, it's going to have to be cleaned up, and people are going to get sick of it. I remember New York uh, City before Giuliani, and people were, it was horrifying. There was, it was, there was 3,000 murders a year. When Giuliani left, there were 250 to 300. Now, for 8 million people, um, that's a very low number of homicides. You know, and most homicides are committed by people that know each other, so it's domestic violence, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, friend, friend, that kind of thing. But to go from 3,000 every single year, 3,000 murders, do that, divide 365 into 3,000. And you see, you know, what you had there. You had, what, eight murders every single day, uh, down to 300 for the whole year. He made New York a safe place because he insisted on proactive law enforcement work. We don't have that anymore, either by directive of the political people or by the officers themselves saying, why would I get involved in this? When I can just turn my head and I'll take the report later on, right? That's And that's what's really happening out there. Uh, they're even being told to back down, back off, or they're doing it themselves because they don't want to go to prison for doing the job that you and me demand they do. So we really need to think about that and support our local police officers. So these men and women I have in these classes are are really they are community heroes. They're wonderful young people that want to do the right thing. And uh, I, 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 I applaud each and every one of them that is willing to uh, don the badge and the gun and go out there and walk around in our communities trying to keep us all safe. That being said, I think that's probably the easiest way to, uh, to launch into a couple of topics that I'd like to get to. Uh, recently, the governor of New York, Governor uh, Hochul, uh, has created uh, what within the State Police of New York, which is a great organization, New York State Police really a great organization, that she wants to uh, set up a, a division that is going to monitor extremism and hate speech. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Extremism. Of course, we know our friends on the left right now, their whole big thing is white supremacy. It's everywhere. White supremacy is everywhere. It's, just, it's the most dangerous thing to every one of our lives, to the existence of our very country, according to our president, white supremacy. Unfortunately, up until a few days ago, when a deranged, sick killer attacked uh, people under the banner of white supremacy, uh, you couldn't really find it. You heard about it. The president said it was out. It was the number one thing, but we didn't see anybody arrested for it. We didn't see attacks. So this kid in Buffalo goes and attacks um, mostly African-American community. That was, his, that was his goal. He stated his goal was to attack African-American community. And then he went and did it. This is a sick, dangerous, evil animal who went and did this, even though he was a young kid. Uh, okay, he's white supremacist. So now the president's jumping all over that, trying to prove that it's everywhere when it was one sick animal kid who did this. 
Now, what was he influenced by? I don't know. We're going to have to look into that and find out. What he, did he belong to a group? Well, I guess we should go lock up the rest of that group, shouldn't we? Let's go find them. If there are white supremacist groups out there that are, uh, that are, are saying we should go uh, attack other races and other religions and attack African-Americans, then I say we investigate them and go lock them up because those are dangerous, dangerous people. We got to get them off the street. But we don't see those investigations. How come? He's been talking about this for over a year now as the most dangerous thing to you and me and to everybody in this country. And yet, do you see big FBI raids? Do you see the FBI showing up at the home of one of these white supremacist leaders at two in the morning with helicopters and frogmen and going in and locking them up? No, you don't, you don't see any of that. Now, does that mean that they're not out there? No, there are. There are lots of white supremacy groups out there who believe that their race should be the, uh, the ultimate, most powerful. They should be this and that. Mostly, it's a bunch of jerks running their mouths and shooting guns on their farm or out in the woods. They're not committing mass crimes. They're not, they're not going into towns and shooting places up and killing people and, and kidnapping people. They're a bunch of, uh, bunch of f- stupid, dangerous people that say dangerous things, but they're not actually doing anything. When they do, they should be locked up. And if they kill somebody, they should be executed, right? We don't need that kind of thinking. But what about the guy who drove the uh, car through the Christmas parade? African-American guy attacked a group of white people at Christmas, purposely to run them over because he was a radical uh, a black activist that, that thought he should attack white people. Do we say that that's every group? Every, of course not. That was one guy, but how come we don't hear about that guy? Because right? that doesn't fit the mold anybody wants you to hear. They want you to think there's these crazy white supremacists running around. And what I say is, let's go get them then. They should be pretty easy to find. If they are the number one danger to every one of us, they got to be on every street corner. Let's go get them. Lock them up. That's my point of view. But the governor of, uh, of, uh, of New York saw this event in Buffalo, in her state, which horrific. Ten people, innocent people were killed by this, uh, this psychotic animal. Um, and now she says, okay, so now we're going to start a state police unit to fight extremism. And you say to yourself, okay, that sounds pretty good. Um, let's go after these extreme groups, no, no matter who they are. White groups, black groups, doesn't matter who they are. If they're extremists and they're dangerous to people... Let's go get them. That's a really smart idea. That's very proactive kind of work. Uh, These people are going to hurt people. They're going to cause mass casualty. Let's get them before they do it. I agree 100% with that. But there's a second part of what this unit is going to be doing. They are also going to be investigating people for hate speech. And they're going to go after people for hate speech. That, uh, that, well, first of all, free speech is free speech. And if it's hate speech, what did I say a couple episodes ago? Turn it off. Don't listen to it. If people want to listen to that nonsense, they can listen to it. But she's going to have this be hate speech is going to be defined politically. That's what I believe. That's good because that's how these things are used. That's why they're not locking up groups of white supremacists every week because there are a lot of those idiots out there. But they're not committing these kind of crimes that this kid did in Buffalo. This kid was a, is a one-off in that area. Uh, but now it gives an excuse to curb your speech, to investigate you when what you're considered, uh, what did our president say? You know, the MAGA king and all his MAGA haters. Well, that's half the country they're talking about, that they don't like what you think and your speech and who you want to vote for. Right? So do you see how this is? It, it, it's a good idea. It's a good idea that's really a, a coverage, a cloak on top of a bad idea, which is to shut down speech. 
because certain people do not like speech. They don't like free speech. They don't like you having a different idea than what they're saying. And that is what I see in, uh, in what the governor's doing. Now, I'm going to give her, I'm going to give her um, the opportunity and the belief that she probably thinks she's doing the right thing. She has some idea. She needs to do something, right? Uh, here she was, lieutenant governor, expecting to do nothing for, for eight years or 12 years uh, as the lieutenant governor. And suddenly uh, her boss is gone and she becomes the person in the hot seat and something happens. So she's got to do something. So what's she going to do? Knee-jerk react. Go after guns. Go after guns. Well, there was a hand uh, holding that gun. There was a finger pulling that trigger. It was a human being. Uh, so it wasn't the gun because there's there's million how many millions of guns in this country and if guns were really the problem we would have millions of deaths every year if guns were just that much of a problem uh their problem in the hands of the wrong people and we can certainly investigate those can't we we could go find people who shouldn't have guns but oh oh oh, oh don't do stop and frisk don't find those guns that are going to kill innocent children in our inner cities uh, don't go after people. Uh, don't go after those guns that, that, that doesn't fit our narrative. Uh, go after these ghost guns, right? And I think ghost guns are bad. Uh, guns without serial numbers are not traceable. They are used in crimes. I don't like them. We, we should get ghost guns out of there. That doesn't mean we get rid of all guns. We got to go after the people that are using the guns. Because if, if we follow that logic, uh, shouldn't we go after Chevrolet? Right, 50,000 deaths a year in car accidents uh, in Chevrolets uh, for people driving badly. Well, it's not the car killing people. It's the person behind the wheel. It's the foot on the gas pedal, right? Just like the gun. It's a, it's a device. Um, so I guess they can make an argument, say, if we got rid of every single gun, there'd be no more killings. Well, over in England uh, and China, where they don't have a lot of guns, uh, we see mass murders by knives and axes and, and, and sharp implements. Meaning if people are going to go after people and do bad things, they'll use what weapons they have. But think of the logic, right? Um, they're going to sue Remington because some of these idiots uh, and killers have used their weapon. Well, uh, there's millions of Remington weapons out there that are not used in killings every single day. But how many Chevrolets kill people? How many Toyotas kill people? Right? How many people are run over by a Dodge pickup truck? Right? Why don't we go after those companies for making dangerous equipment? How many people drive off the road and kill themselves by accident? Why don't we go after the, for the car manufacturers? Well, you know, we, cars are different. No, because it's a political agenda. It's a political agenda. Guns are in the Constitution, and therefore, people want to change the Constitution, get rid of your right to defend yourself. So every, everything comes back to a, a reason. Um, but I, I give the governor, I give her a little bit of do there. She's trying to do the right thing, but of course, she's going the wrong way. She's, she's not going after... You could go after people, and you could solve crimes by going after people, but they don't always want to do that. When it comes to actually what happened in Buffalo, it is it is very, very painful as an American because people want to say that this killer attacked the African-American community, and that's true. And it, that in and of itself is hideous and horrible and disgusting that somebody would target people, innocent people, just because of their race. But what he actually did is he killed Americans. You see, we have to stop thinking of each other as hyphenated this and hyphenated that. He attacked American citizens that were doing nothing wrong. They were at a food store, at a grocery store. And this guy went in there and because of his own hatred, uh, attacked these people. So we're finding out in the investigation that this kid was not a, a unknown quantity. He, he was on the radar. 
They knew about him. He made threats last year. And what did they do? How was it investigated? Well, that's what we need to find out. Because it's very hard in, in a country of freedom, like America, you cannot just arrest people and put them in jail because they said something. Right? Like terroristic threats. Let's look. That's what we would be looking at if this kid made threats. I'm going to shoot up my school, which apparently is what he said last year. So a terroristic threat, to be realistic, it has to be um, the victim has to not just hear the words or know about it and the person just doesn't say them, but it has to be probable that they could, they could actually do it. So if you and I are standing on a street and I say, dude, I'll blow your brains out, right? And that's a horrible, ugly thing to say to somebody. It's scary. It's intimidating. But if I don't have a weapon on me, there's no proximity for me to have a weapon to blow your brains out. Uh, it's an ugly thing to say. It's not necessarily a crime. If I take a gun out and I point it at you and say, I'll blow your brains out, now you have a real terroristic threat because uh, the ability for you to do it is right there in front of you. So therefore, it's a realistic criminal charge you could put on someone. So our laws break things down like that. Um, with this kid, we don't know what kind of a threat he made. Maybe it was investigated properly. Maybe it wasn't. You know, I see lots of these things. I deal with lots of schools. I teach people how to deal with threats. I teach police officers how to deal with threats. And I see a different response across the country, how people handle things, how seriously they take it. You know, lots of these, these killers, like this, uh, this person, they create a, a kill list or a manifesto. And we find these things. And I found uh, schools that will take a kill list off a kid. I'm going to kill these 10 kids. I hate them. Uh, and they'll admonish the kid. You can't write things like that. And they, they destroy it, throw it away. They don't call the authorities. In the cases where they do call the police and say, hey, this kid wrote this list. He's going to kill these 10 people. Uh, the police investigate it. And sometimes they do a good job. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have no experience with this kind of thing. They don't know how to look deeper into it. And they talk to the kid and they can, the kid convinces, well, I'm not really going to kill anybody. I don't have access to guns. My father's not a hunter. I'm not a hunter. I just was mad and I wrote that down. Okay. They admonish the kid and they move on. And then a year later, the kid does have access to a gun and kills 15 people. And you say, well, they investigated them last year. Why didn't they get them? Well, it's all dependent on the circumstances of the investigation at the time. Lots of people say things that foreshadow violence, but when you investigate it at the time, at the moment, there's nothing that you have that, that allows you to charge them or take them off the street unless you do a very in-depth investigation where you might find something. You might. In many of these, these killers' uh, backgrounds and in their life and what's going on with them, if people looked a little closer, they might have found some things that they could have used to actually charge them and, and either get them into psychological help or put them in jail, or get them off the street, get them away from us, from decent society. So for the people of Buffalo, specifically for the community that was targeted, it has to be very, very painful. It has to feel lonely it, and, and be scary. And I don't I don't feel any different than that. I feel the same way. I, I feel like my brothers and sisters in America were attacked, uh, just like I would if somebody uh, targeted an Asian community or my own Italian community, right? If they just ta targeted Italians because they hated Italian, I would feel very bad for that community. I'd be scared. I would feel personally upset. But I see those victims in Buffalo. I see them as, as Americans. I see them as my brothers and sisters. And we should all think about that in, in that context. That was a terrible, terrible American tragedy that took place. For people to politicize it 
doesn't help that community, doesn't help our bigger American community, uh, and doesn't help us to solve the problem we have of people who do these kind of crimes. Because in many cases, uh, they do reveal things about themselves, about their intent, and we just don't always investigate it properly. So I want to say God bless all those people who lost their lives in Buffalo, bless their families, hopefully that you know God will comfort them uh, in this terrible, terrible time. It's, uh, it's not an easy thing. So Governor Hochul, good luck. Do the right thing. Don't shut down free speech. Uh, don't take away guns, because uh, that's the oh, that's the other part uh, that I wanted to mention. Attached to her law is that if you if you are making speech that they don't deem is okay, New York has the red flag law, which means if you're a danger to yourself or somebody else, they can go in and take your weapons. Now is where you see the easy nexus between we don't like guns, we don't want you to have guns, we can't prevent you from having guns, but. If you say something we don't like and we determine that you are a danger, now we're going to come and take your guns away and you're never going to get your guns back. How many times do you think they're going to do that if their effort is actually to remove guns from people and not just protect society? So we have to think about all these kind of things as we go forward. Uh, the last thing we should talk about here today, because my time is running quick, is uh, if you want to stay healthy, Take a look at Healthy Cell. I talk about it all the time. I'm taking it. Uh, I haven't had the colds I have normally. Healthy Cell Immune Boost is really good. And if you need to uh, get some sleep and you're having trouble sleeping, they make a, uh, a REM sleep product to help you sleep better. So I just throw that in here because we're, we're talking about uh, you know being safe and being healthy right now. All right. We have big elections going on. There's big elections in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is becoming a bellwether state. And we're going to find out how Pennsylvania comes out. Um... Did, did President Trump's uh, endorsement help? Did it not help? Uh, is it something that uh, could move people to vote for people? We saw some people come out and say they didn't care about his endorsement, and other people uh, were on record saying, absolutely, I was going to vote one way, but President Trump asked for the support for this other candidate, and I went that way. We're going to see an interesting, interesting season of voting, and hopefully we can change some of the things going on in our country and turn things around for the better. All right, everybody, listen. Remember what we always say, be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. This is Lieutenant Joe for Chasing Justice signing off. Until we meet again.